Welcome back to Building Our Future with me, Bert Broadhead. This is the first episode of Building Our Future to be recorded since the outbreak of COVID, and it seems like much of our way of life has temporarily changed. There's plenty of speculation out there about whether or not these changes will be permanent, and that extends to how we use our real estate. In today's episode, I'm exploring the use of office space as a stimulus for innovation, and what that now looks like in a post-COVID working from home environment. My guest today is Katie Casabalas, an urbanist, architect, and educator whose career has straddled the worlds of both practice and academia. She is currently an assistant professor in architecture at University of Virginia, a visiting senior fellow at LSE Cities, and the design director of Casa Wu. Her work is at the forefront of a new direction for urban research, one that investigates the role of technological innovation in guiding models of future development. Her current research investigates the evolution of the workplace under the pressures of today's knowledge economy. Uh, Katie, very warm welcome to the podcast. Hi, Bert. Thank you for having me. It's great to be part of this podcast today. So I should start by saying you you are our first post-COVID podcasty. Um, so this, this may be uh, a podcast of, of two halves where we, we start talking about life before and, and then any, any impacts which may have occurred since March. That's it may be best just to, to start with you giving us a, a brief introduction to the, the nature of your, your current research. So my current research looks at the nature of work, what it is today, how is it changing, but most importantly, how is that shaping the form of our cities. And to shed some light to this rather broad question, I'm specifically studying the phenomenon of innovation clusters and how these clusters, if we think about them as an extreme condition, can help us learn something new and specific about how we work today and how that affects our cities. Katie, when you you talk about clusters, are we we talking about a number of different businesses kind of clustering together naturally, or is this more kind of big companies creating their own campuses? We are talking about this spatial agglomeration of different industries. Now, some of that happens uh, naturally and organically, and some of it is actually engineered uh, because there's a lot of literature that tells us that it's actually very beneficial economically to do so uh, due to shared uh, costs of infrastructure or knowledge spillover between the different industries. And in fact, when it comes to technology-related industries, we have found that clusters are even more important to accelerate that type of economic growth. Well, I suppose there may be two main motivators for locating a workplace, one being maximizing productivity and the other innovation. And the clustering effect is what you believe to be the key driver for innovation. Yes, or a side effect of it. In many ways, I think that we are confronted with this clustering for many reasons that are beyond the discipline of urban design, but we ought to examine what are those spatial outcomes and how are they affecting our well-being and our collective identities. So in many ways, uh, the question for the research became, in search for innovation, 
what type of urbanism are we producing? And if we were to study the urban form, not as an economic concentration, but through a physical lens, could we learn something new about those formations? Could we potentially drive a more equitable development? Right. And you've spent, prior to lockdown, um, a reasonable amount of time traveling the world and and looking at, at different examples. What are your kind of findings thus far? The major key learning from that experience was that while innovation policy and innovation clusters seem to be um, very well um, sought after in different contexts, it actually happens in many different ways, in many different forms. And in some ways, that's what makes it so interesting and so difficult to catalog. Um, we saw different trends from suburban to urban locations. And something that really struck me was this idea of a flexible, all-inclusive working environment. So I became very interested in unpacking that notion and understanding better what it meant in terms of spatial design, but also what it meant in different geographies as we did the field work and talked to different stakeholders. What does that mean just conceptually? What is a flexible, all-inclusive working environment? I think that in the pre-COVID era, in many ways, we were in the midst of a, a co-working revolution. And a lot of that entailed cities and companies to be in direct competition for each other for talent to acquire it, but also to retain it. So as part of an effort to attract this new uh, skilled global workforce, the workplace was slowly redesigned to provide a whole range of amenities that you would otherwise find in an urban environment. So whether that is the need to grab a meal or to do laundry or to go to the postal office, all of those amenities suddenly wound their way within the workplace. Yeah. So then if you come back to the kind of uh, the question of the the campus, like that, that I suppose is the, um, the natural kind of extension of that thought, albeit what you're missing in the campus is the clustering with other businesses. Yes, absolutely. I think the tech campus itself has been evolving over time. I think if we look at examples in the Bay Area and in Pacific and Silicon Valley, we can see how they're slowly growing from a series of buildings to larger and larger buildings. If we think about, for example, the Apple campus in Silicon Valley, that by itself is one of those kind of monofunctional mixed-use environments. When you're looking at these projects, is is innovation or the, the desire to kind of create innovation at the heart of the design of these buildings? Is that something that is being proactively thought about? Absolutely. I think that a lot of times... There is much thought and consideration gone into these projects. Um, every project is different and it has been brought to life under different constraints and considerations. So as you can imagine, there's a very big variety when it comes to uh, understanding which parts of the design are actually meant to stipulate innovation. Um, so, But I think it's important to understand that while these environments are constructed in a way to foster innovation and exchange, 
There are also, in many ways, very frictionless, constructed interior environments that in some way are designed to facilitate collaboration and knowledge exchange, but only among like-minded individuals. I guess that's uh, the key in some ways, because you people may be listening to this and thinking, well, actually, you know, a city, particularly somewhere like London, is, is in many ways a kind of organic version of this where you happen to have everything on your doorstep and it's incredibly lucky and people don't need to think about that too much as long as you're located close to all the amenities. I guess this is looking kind of beyond that and saying, okay, well, we're operating at enough scale where not only have we got to look externally to all those things, but internally as well. Yes. And in some ways, this idea that I go to work and everything is provided is very exciting. I, I would very much like to, to be part of uh, such an environment. Uh, at the same time, I think it's important to, to pause for a moment and think that this exclusive, all-inclusive type of urbanism while it works for the purposes of innovation within the environment of a corporation, it is also one of the biggest challenges I think it puts forward uh, as a model of urbanism, right? Because it's inherently closed um, to the outside and only designed for people that have got the right to work there or are at this moment part of this very special community. Um, so I don't have anything against amenities and against comfort. And I think in some ways, yes, our cities you know, should provide vibrant and amenity-rich environments as well, but they do it in a fundamentally different way, right? Um, cities do it in a way that in their best version, at least, it's accessible to a wider socioeconomic range and in ways they encourage interaction among people that share different backgrounds. And I think moving forward, maintaining that interaction between people that don't necessarily share the same background or education or you know, work at the same place is fundamentally very important for the cities of the future. So I was a bit concerned, if you like, about that trend to create these amenity-rich environments. Um, and I'm very curious as how can we take these environments and take some of those parts, if not all of it, outwards and allow those parts to connect the tech campus with its surroundings, wherever that might be. Another kind of good real-life examples where, where you've got corporate innovation, working well with wider civic planning? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I think a notable example of such development would be the South Lake Union District in Seattle. It is home to the Amazon campus, among with other technology companies, and it was developed through a private real estate office. Um, but the way that the development has taken place it is very much integrated within the fabric of the city. So actually the boundaries of the tech district with the city are very much blurred. And it's very easy for people that are not part of this tech bubble to not only access um, this neighborhood, but there are actually reasons for you to be there. So for example, something as simple as a cafe that is open to everyone and not only employees 
can make a huge difference in how these districts operate and relate to their larger context. When you talk about a, a kind of um, innovation-led district, if, if you looking closer to home, I mean, does something like King's Cross in London tick that box or, or is that too generic a development to really be seen as innovation-led? That's a very interesting and insightful question. In my worldview, I would say, yes, uh, King's Cross is an innovation district in the sense that there is enough of a tech component uh, within the planning, along with many other things that come together to produce this new type of district. It's in many ways you are pointing out something important for the discourse, which is how do you go about defining exactly which district is an innovation district and which district is just a central business district. Um, and they, the way to differentiate the two is actually uh, very much a blurry territory. Um, so a lot of times an innovation district because, uh, begins with a vision or an idea or a spatial imaginary. And it takes many, many decades to actually establish these districts. So I think when it comes to King's Cross, what we have is the potential of an innovation district in the making. Okay. Does an innovation district need more than just a um, designation? Does it, does it need tax incentives and a, and a, and a different kind of um, status? to really differentiate it from just yet another part of a city? Yes. In most of the cases that we have examined, the land structure and the ownership of the land, uh, tax incentives are hugely important in whether or not this project uh, takes off. Uh, and it's very interesting to place that conversation to the very beginning, actually, of the origins of Silicon Valley with the Stanford Industrial Park which was built on university-owned land. And the university was under the stipulation that they could not sell off that land for profit. So then they decided to rent it out to local companies to increase the, the profitability of the university itself. So the idea that um, somehow it needs to work financially as well as intellectually is very much part of the reality of how these districts come about. I don't know whether this is this is specific to the UK or or not, but a lot of the university spin-offs in the UK are now kind of located in science parks, life sciences life science parks and the like, which tends to be located out of town. And and whilst there will be amenity there, there is clearly a lot less than you would get if you were, you know, located within a city centre. Mm-hmm. How does that kind of tie in with the concept of what you've seen as being best practice for innovation? I think the example that you're describing fits very nicely into this model of the triple helix, which is a strategic collaboration between anchor institutions and public and private entities in creating these districts. An innovation district is very much like a living organism. Just because you name it innovation doesn't mean that it produces innovation. And just because it does it sometimes doesn't mean that it could always produce new ideas and exchange thoughts and um, commercialize products. So I think that the reason why institutions are very often thought as a 
good idea or a good practice when it comes to trying to establish an innovation ecosystem is because of that continuous Uh, circulation of knowledge and ideas that are so fundamental in the way they work. Now, when it comes to the notion of amenities and how that could become less of a district, a man-made district, and more into a productive neighborhood, perhaps it will take some time. When people are kind of looking for space, um, a tenant's looking for office space, the view has always been, you know, it's all about the physical space is what you're leasing. And increasingly, there seems to be a move towards what you're talking about, which is that you're not just leasing the space, you're you're buying into all the surrounding amenities, which I suppose are kind of factored into the rent, but but also the... uh, the neighbouring occupiers and the, the community and uh, people that your employees may meet and and stimulate even new business or innovation or whatever it may be. Do you think the traditional real estate developers are going to somehow have to take ownership of that kind of softer side of real estate? My understanding was that those pressures on the surrounding environment and the importance of not only the property itself, but the relative location of the property were already um, underpinning changes within the industry of real estate development. Um, Perhaps I'm seeing it mostly through a design perspective, but it seems to me from what we know about cluster developments, at least pre-COVID, is that every new tenant, every new anchor institution you add into an existing mix of other institutions, the power of attraction is exponential. So if two bakeries or two tech companies are in one location, uh, their attraction is, let's say, uh, magnitude of one. And if you double the number of companies, the magnitude of attraction grows exponentially. If you build on that theme, so just putting people into close proximity is, is clearly, you know, that, that is the traditional role of real estate. What has been less embraced is can you, can you go a step further and, and create the community for the cluster and really actually not just put them close to each other, but bring them together and kind of own that community infrastructure? I think that would be... Uh, the next step and where the greatest opportunity for a different type of social innovation lies. Perhaps we are at a beginning moment of this whole innovation-led development in which a lot of emphasis is being placed on, okay, I have this property, I have this building, what do I do to ensure innovation within my company or within my organization? And perhaps once we get a better grasp on what that means, we can be you know, more eager and more uh, systematic in trying to do certain things to engage better the location that in which we're in, right? Which could lead to, I think, a whole different uh, ripple effect when it comes to thinking about innovation and cities and progress. From where I'm sitting, and I'd be interested to hear your view, but the last three months and the various disruptions that have that have been brought about. One, one of the outcomes is that people are now thinking more about how workspace is used and, and what the ultimate 
purpose of it is more than ever before. Does that tally in with, with what you're seeing as well? Yes, absolutely. Um, the past few months have been quite a, quite a shock, right, uh, in many ways. We went from working from anywhere to working from home rather quickly overnight. And, and in many, t- many times I think about the emergence of COVID-19 as a fast-track empirical experiment testing our collective assumptions surrounding productivity and the future of the workplace. Um, If we look at the design of the workplace over time, we see that it's far from static. It has continuously reinvented itself, not only in response to technological advancements, but also to changing notions of productivity and user preferences. And I think uh, COVID has forced us to pause And while we're caught in this plot twist, for better or for worse, there is a tendency and an opportunity, actually, to rethink uh, how the workplace worked and what can be done in the future to improve that condition. And uh, across many sectors, not just the workplace, it seems that one of the short-term impacts is that a a lot of trends seem to be being accelerated. Do you look at things like working from home and and viewed out as being a permanent part of our future working patterns? You're absolutely correct. Remote working has emerged as one of those very pressing debates in in the realms of what is going to happen to the future of the workplace. And in many ways, remote working has been a reality for some time now. But the pandemic, as you said, really accelerated this trend highlighting not only the benefits of doing so, but also the challenges that come with this type of working arrangements. A few months into lockdown now, um, a couple of things are becoming apparent to me. The first is this general um, acceptance that certain tasks, specifically those that are focused around individual work, could happen at home, equally well, if not better than before. So that by itself has revived this age-old debate about the benefits of flexible working. We are suddenly kind of freed from the morning commute, but in some ways, I think most of us also find ourselves working from our kitchen table while the laundry is happening in the background and we're attending to a child potentially on the side. So I would argue that, yes, the boundaries between working and living have never been so fluid before, but how sustainable is this really for the long term? Um, Perhaps some boundaries between the workplace and the home are important to ensure long-term productivity and and well-being. I've read an interesting thing, um, I forget where, but on um, the commute and the seeming importance of people's commutes for for kind of mental health and just a few moments in a day where even though you might be crammed in under someone's armpit, you've at least got 20 minutes of your brain turning off and listening to a podcast or whatever it may be, but you, you have some form of downtime. Uh, absolutely. I also read a very interesting study how the act of putting on a freshly ironed shirt and stepping out of your domestic existence into the workplace where you resume this potentially different persona is also very good for your mental health. And I can attain to that most of the days working from home. Mike Phillips on uh, on BizNow, she just just this morning did a, a quick article 
summarizing two Harvard studies about how people have been working during the pandemic. And, and I guess that the key things that people have come to the conclusion that are being missed are the social capital you build up through kind of small talk and interactions in the office. Uh, and then uh, what I suppose you've been talking about, which which is kind of slightly buzzwordy being referred to as serendipitous moments of innovation. Absolutely. I can relate to that um, quite a lot, actually. And I think the growing consensus through these few months of lockdown is that certain tasks, especially the collaborative ones, as well as socializing, which, as you said, is so important in facilitating those informal knowledge spillovers and building trust among employees and sharing the gossip of the day, um, is, is still better face-to-face. For better or for worse, the technology that we have in hand doesn't quite replicate that face-to-face interaction yet. And from the people you've been speaking to, so uh, I suppose we've all read about um, companies saying that for the foreseeable future, everyone can work from home and that is the future. Other people seem very keen to get back into the office. Do you see a fundamental shift away from the, the movement of urbanism that we've we've seen for as, as long as any of us can remember, or is or is there say um, just a, a slight realignment of where we're heading? I think that the long term implications of the pandemic are less clear. It is still too soon to understand how this will ultimately cause people to rethink their priorities, their lifestyles, their working and their living environments. Um, I think the challenge here for architecture, urban design, and real estate as well is to mitigate these short-term concerns with long-term goals, right, that can create more kind of inclusive and sustainable communities moving forward. Uh, There's been a lot of discussion as well as, you know, when are we getting back to normal? Uh, And I think that perhaps the question should be when we do finally return to the workplace, can we do it in a way that it makes more sense, that it's more inclusive, more sustainable, and more livable? Um, so with regard to the future of the office space itself and with the idea of uh, central business districts, I think the nature of work will slightly shift. But as we discussed, the need for collaboration and exchange, both for productivity, but also for our social sanity will continue to drive the need for us to come together in a physical location. So I suspect that the office will continue to be very important in the future of our economies and how our cities are being formed. For me, it is less of a question of, is the office going to disappear completely? But uh, the interesting debate becomes, where will the office be located and in what form? You know, traditionally, the demand for commercial real estate is structured around principles of clustering and co-location, but... And transport. And and transport, absolutely. Uh, But perhaps what we discovered, the fact that certain tasks it's okay, we can do them from home and it's fine, we're still productive, we're still good employees, might begin to uh, put forward a new type of flexibility, one that evolves less about 
flexible furniture and free coffee, but more around the notion of time. I think there's a real opportunity here to rethink the nine to five schedule uh, in a way that um, not hinders productivity, but makes it even better. That's an interesting concept. So I also think there's there's a lot that is um, kind of overlooked in all out working from home argument. And you, you touched before on inclusivity. And clearly working from home is far more manageable for those who've got the space uh, and the resources to work from home. If you don't or you're younger and you're starting out and you're sharing accommodation, there's all sorts of things which can make it extremely difficult, which seems fundamentally um, unfair. Yes. I mean, one of the things that the pandemic has so vividly highlighted is exactly those inequalities in our cities, in our housing arrangements. And that's why I think moving forward, it's not about going backwards, but what can we do to improve certain of those conditions moving forward? What becomes really interesting is if we think about the push and pull between the urban center and the periphery, um, and to see if this moment of COVID and this idea of a flexible uh, schedule can begin to shift that dynamic in a way that it becomes less about the residential sector per se versus the commercial sector, but more about uh, a hybrid type of sector. So what I'm alluding to is potentially somewhere between the residential neighborhoods and the central business districts that we have today lies um, the opportunity to imagine a new type of mixed-use environment, one that responds both to our desire for potentially a shorter commute, but nevertheless a commute, um, and the need for associability and collaboration. So instead of those uh, two separated sectors, I wonder if we're going to start seeing the notion of a productive neighborhood or local hubs become the new buzzwords um, that will drive the next workplace revolution forward. That makes a lot of sense on a lot of levels. The one thing I wonder about there is how you then match that with the idea of sectoral focus to, to stimulate that innovation. Uh, absolutely. And as we discussed previously, the power is in coming together. Uh, but perhaps we could look at our cities and ask ourselves, uh, where are, you know, is there an opportunity to expand those circles of influence? And to what degree do you do that before the system falls apart, right? Uh, and I don't know the answer to that question, but it's definitely a fascinating one to think of. It's also important to, I think, frame this not as a conversation of centralized versus decentralized development, but fundamentally about what is the relationship of the workplace to the residential sector in particular. So there's been a lot of emphasis about the workplace as it relates to amenities, the coffee shop, the gym, the subway. But it seems to me that if the effects of COVID have a more permanent duration in our behaviors, we're going to have to think a little bit harder how the residential neighborhood relates now to these 
clusters of the workplace. Maybe it means coming up with a new sector. Maybe it means coming up with a new, new high-rise typology of living. Uh, I think that the debate is there and the solutions are various. Whilst um, this is an incredibly stressful and, and horrible time for, for a lot of people, it is, it is um, hard to argue that it's not an interesting time from a, from a kind of a academic point of view. And you know, in the UK alone, when you talk about kind of a, that kind of urban clustering effect, the, the planning changes that are being brought in at the moment are you know, certainly the, the most dramatic in my memory, probably a lot beyond that. And the idea being that it's getting increasingly difficult to pigeonhole use in sectors and, and actually that you just need a much wider planning remit for kind of CBD usage. Yes, I think it's very interesting to begin to understand what is the capacity of the different sectors to merge. Because obviously, in theory, it sounds very interesting to practice. There's a lot of complexities that come with such a merging. Um, it's, pos- it's almost as if we are effectively undoing what we did in the last in the early 19, in the late 19th, early 20th century, in which industrial cities saw value in separating work, either the factory or in the office from the home. So I think we've just experienced a period in which the two have been separated so far apart, um, clustering, and the whole notion of innovation clusters in particular began to bring that idea closer together. And now COVID is forcing us to think about that in a scale much larger and in sectors that are uh, wider than just innovation-led companies. Yeah, but, but, but you know, whilst that's been led on the, the, the kind of workspace front by the, the, the big tech companies in, in previous times, retail, which has had its own its own um, much-heralded problems, uh, it's been heading down a, a similar path um, and also been kind of looking towards a, a similar end product. If you look at Unibuy, one of the, the biggest um, owner-operators of shopping centers in the world, their, their kind of, um, I can't forget what it is, 10-year, 20-year vision is having effectively all these you know, city center urban malls becoming many, many cities and, and having you know, work, leisure, play, residential, the, the full thing just brought together. Yes, we see that trend uh, very vividly in cities like New York uh, and Hong Kong as well. It's quite fascinating to enter one of those malls and it's a mixture of being in a hotel and a restaurant and a recreational environment all in one. Uh, it's going to be very interesting to see how social distancing in the short term, but also habits in the long term affect uh, that model of bringing everything together under one roof. Do you think there's going to be a bit of a, a kind of race on at the moment? So real estate, however you want to define it, is is going to have to adapt to some form of change remains to be seen what it is. And at the same time, um, uh, kind of remote working technology has clearly seen an enormous boom and innovation in that sector, I would imagine, will be flying through the roof. So the quest to develop the software or piece of technology which can replicate that social capital that people talk about being within the physical space. 
is it one versus the other? Is, is there a, a kind of competition here, do you think? Well, it doesn't have to be. However, um, yes, I would agree with you that these technologies all of a sudden have become so prominent in our existence. And I have to admit, I'm thankful for video conferencing and all that it does to keep us connected and alive as social beings for now. Um, but I am hoping that moving forward, we are going to be able and willing to come together in a physical location and exchange our thoughts and our ideas. One of the biggest challenges I think current technology poses in the way um, that we interact is that lack of spontaneity. It is very hard to be spontaneous uh, when you look at yourself in the video screen and when other people are you know, looking at each other. Uh, having said that, um, I've been noticing some interesting technology coming forward, especially from the realm of augmented reality, in which they're using the HoloLens or other uh, technology to uh, basically create an avatar of yourself and be able to jump into a virtual room and collaborate with your team um, teammates in a, in a virtual way. Of course, I haven't tried that yet, um, so I don't know if it is actually as effective as it could be or how far the technology actually is from turning that virtual room into an actual experience that can compete with the real thing. Um, but I do suspect that we're going to see a lot of advancements in that sector. Having said that, as an urbanist, I'm hoping that, as I said, our cities and our daily lives are such that we still want to to be outside and be part of the physical environment as well. Uh, right. Well, I, I'd echo that not not just as an urbanist, but as a as a kind of human being. Um, I think everyone's <laughs> missing a bit of uh, social yeah. interaction, physical social interaction. Katie, thank you. That brings us to our last three questions. So my first one is, please may you tell us what your favorite building is and why? My favorite building, or one of my favorite building, is Peter Zumthor's Colombo Art Museum in Cologne. The way that the building engages the existing fabric is just so thoughtful and so seamless. And then when you're in the building, the materiality of the structure creates this amazing ambient lighting, um, which when I visited left this incredible impression on me. So I like it because I think that architecture has the capacity to be memorable. And that is definitely a space that I visited many years ago. And I still have a very vivid uh, image of how it felt to be in it. Uh, well, that's a lovely description. Not a building I'm familiar with, but one which I clearly need to look up. Thank you. Please may you recommend us uh, a book that's helped shape your, your views on, uh, on what you do. I will recommend you The Life and Death of a Great American City by Jane Jacobs. It is as relevant today as it was when it first came out in the 1960s, especially, I think, for rethinking the built environment under the current measures. Huh. Um, thank you. Um, and finally, which real estate related technology or innovation should we all be watching out for? 
I'm actually uh, very intrigued recently by the applications of machine learning and IE in the built environment. I recently came across the work of a Cambridge professor, T. Slithenthal, who uses machine learning to classify architectural typologies and then link them to real estate valuation. So I think it's interesting because that technology can become a bridge between urban research and real estate and create a common language uh, between the two. So I'm very curious to see how this technology can produce value for uh, the real estate sector, but also help us urban designers document the built environment in a way that it would be impossible uh, simply relying on the human eye. So I'm looking forward to that. That is interesting. That sounds like he should speak to uh, Savannah de Savary at uh, Built ID, who's doing a lot of work on that. You can follow Katie's design and research work at her website, kasawu.com, or through Instagram, either at at kasawu underscore studio or at kiriaki.kasabalis. to predict the future right now seem like a fool's errand. There's too many unknowns to understand the full extent of change that we face, but it seems fair to assume that we will see changes in many shapes and forms. The evolution of the office, its form, function and utility, was well underway pre-COVID. While the working from home phenomenon has prompted much talk about a way of working revolution, it may simply be a catalyst for acceleration in themes that were already well underway. Now, if there's a silver lining, it's that we may or we already do seem to be thinking much more about our individual productivity as it relates to our work environments. And that will hopefully lead to better than ever buildings, design, and ultimately quality of life. Please join me again soon, where we'll be exploring other emerging themes in a rapidly changing environment. If you have a moment, please do spare a minute to share this podcast. It really does help.